Okay? Here's five characteristics that are going to define us. And you'll find these in the life of Jesus. If you look at the New Testament church, they define the New Testament church. And if you look at any healthy, growing church, these five characteristics will define those churches. Number one is prayer. I'm not going to spend a lot of time elaborating on this one because tonight we're going to do prayer. All right, We're going to have prayer. We're going to have communion tonight at 6 o'clock. I invite everyone because this is a call to prayer. This is where it all begins. In fact, church, if we get this one thing right, God will help us to get everything else right. I promise you. Not based upon my word, but based upon this word right here. Based upon God's word. If we get this one thing right, God will help us to line everything else up. God will help us to get everything else done the right way. If we can get ourselves to that place of prayer, and man, I've heard people praying this week, and, and we've had people showing up even when I wasn't here. People have come into the sanctuary. People have been calling upon God this week, and I said, oh God, that's exactly what we need. People that just recognize the need to get back to the basics to say, we have got to call upon God. You look how many times people fell on their face desperate before God throughout Scriptures. And when people fell on their face before God, God turned His ear. Listen, God's ear is inclined to the heart and to the cry of His people. When, when people begin to cry out to God, God will turn His ear toward His people and God will begin to move. God will begin to answer the cry of His people. God will begin to do miracles. God will begin to do great works. And so church, if we will get this one thing right, God will help us to line everything else up. God will raise up beauty out of the ashes. And so tonight, 6 o'clock, we're just going to join right here around the front of this church. We're going to join for a time of communion when we begin, and then we're going to begin to call upon God and say, God, listen, we're here in this place. We are hungry for you. We are desperate for you to do your work. And God, we are calling upon you. We get this one right, God, you're going to line the rest of it up. Amen? So that's number one. Prayer is going to define our church in every single way. All right? Number two is love must define our church. The primary trademark of Christians, Jesus said, must be love. That's the primary trademark or the primary characteristic, whatever word you want to use there. It must be love. In John 13, 35, Jesus said, By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Uh, that's it. The primary thing. If you love one another. The word there is, uh, the, the Greek word there is agape love. It's not friendship love. It's not romantic love. But it is a sacrificial love. It is also defined as a self-giving love that seeks the good of one another. It is also defined as it seeks to promote the highest good of our brothers and sisters in Christ. It is a love that comes alongside one another in times of trials. When someone's going through a difficult time, that agape love, it comes along beside them and says, listen, I'm going to walk with you through this difficult time that you're going through. It is a love that is careful of one another's feelings and their reputation and says, listen, I am here with you in this hard time of your life and I'm going to be careful of what you're experiencing and what you're going through. It is a love that denies themselves in order to promote one another's welfare. That's what agape love is. It is a love that perfectly reflects how Jesus acted 
and how he spoke and how he treated other people. You, you look at the life of Jesus. You want to see what agape love is. You look at how Jesus acted, how He spoke, and how He treated other people. And that is what agape love is. And agape love is going to permeate the atmosphere of this church. We're going to guard it. We're going to protect it. And it is going to define us as a church. It's going to be prayer. And it's going to be that agape love. In all that we do, we are going to seek the highest good of one another. And when somebody's going through those trials and hard times, we're going to come along beside one another and say, listen, I'm here for you. We're going to put an arm around one another and we're going to lift one another up. We're going to promote one another. We're going to let that rule in every relationship and every action and every decision and every choice that we make. We are going to let agape love rule. In fact, if Salem Assembly of God, if it is known for anything outside the four walls of this church, it is going to be agape love. I don't care if we're known for being friendly or not, but I do want to be known as a loving church. All right? I mean, friendliness is one thing, but I want people to know us. If they know us for anything, that is a church that truly loves people. Amen? Again, we get prayer right, and we get that agape love right. People are going to be drawn to the kingdom of God. Amen? They're going to be drawn to Jesus Christ. Then number three, the third characteristic that must define us is forgiveness. Must be forgiveness. Forgiveness is a release or a dismissal of something. It is a deliberate decision to not hold something against another person despite what he or she has done to you. That's exactly what Jesus does to us when we come to Him in repentance of our sins. Are we guilty of sins? Guilty as a dog. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Do we deserve punishment for our sins? Absolutely. Every one of us. Because we have all sinned. But you know what? When we come to Jesus and we ask Him, we admit that we are sinners, and we put our faith and our trust in Him, and we receive Him into our life, He forgives us. Hallelujah. Praise God. He forgives us of our sins. He does not hold those transgressions against us any longer. The Bible says that He washes our sins away as far as the east is from the west. Our, our lives, we are pure, whiter than snow. That's what the blood of Jesus does to us. We are, those sins and transgressions are no longer held against us. We are no longer guilty. We are no longer going to suffer the punishment of what we deserve. We are forgiven. We are 100% clean and pure. We are released or dismissed of the charges that are held against us. And you know what? At some point, in fact, not at some point, at many points in our lives, every one of us are going to stand in the place of either needing forgiveness or needing to extend forgiveness to someone else. At many points in life, we are going to need forgiveness because we have committed a wrong to someone else. Every one of us 
And at many points in life, we are going to need to extend forgiveness because we have been personally wronged. And you know what? As long as you continue to live, I guarantee you, you're going to stand in those two positions many more times the rest of your life. You're going to need forgiveness, and you're going to need to extend forgiveness. In other words, forgiveness must become a way of life for you and I. Ephesians 4.32, the Bible says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. In other words, why do we forgive? Why do we extend forgiveness? Now, how many times did Jesus say we forgive somebody? He gave us a number, but it wasn't about the numbers, right? Yeah, He said 70 times 7, but it wasn't about, hey, saying line them up 490 times. In other words, He was saying... As, as many times as they needed. It's not keeping record. In fact, as many times as they needed. We extend forgiveness because we have personally been forgiven of our sins. Because Jesus forgave us, we turn around and we extend forgiveness to one another. Jesus even taught us a principle in Matthew chapter 6 that an unforgiving person is going to be an unforgiven person. So in other words, we don't keep record of wrongs. Somebody has wronged us and they've done something that has offended us. We don't keep record of those things, but we write those things off. We forgive them of those things. And again, there are no limits to how many times they do those things. And so along with love and along with forgiveness, we, this is going to define our church. And you say, yeah, but pastor, they, they said those things and I hear those things and I know those things are going off. You've got to write them off. Because listen, when you hold unforgiveness, bitterness, and resentment will set up in you. And you may think, well, I, you know what? I'm going to punish them by my unforgiveness, and I'm going to make them suffer. But listen, when you hold unforgiveness in your heart, you are the one who suffers. And you are the one that is in prison. You are the one that actually is imprisoned to that situation. That person is able to move on, but you imprison yourself. You're the one that is in chains to that situation. So in every relationship and in our speech and interactions, and you say, yeah, but pastor, I know they did wrong, and I heard them and they said all these things. Listen, we are going to let it go. All right, what, what's the movie Frozen from Disney? All right, the famous song that they had, they let it go. All right, we're going to let it go. We're, the past is the past. We're going to let it go in Jesus' name because forgiveness must define our church. We're going to let those things go and say, in Jesus' name, if Jesus forgave me and, and all the things that I've done wrong, all of my transgressions and all of my failures, and He still is willing to forgive me when I sin against Him, I am going to forgive my brothers and sisters in Christ. They may have said some things. They may have done some things. They may have been nasty and ugly and all those other things. But in Jesus' name, I'm going to let it go because I know I need forgiveness and you know what they need forgiveness too so forgiveness is going to define our church from this day forward can i get an amen, amen. all right number four we've got love we got prayer and we got love and we've got forgiveness number four is grace it's kind of in the same vein but i think it's i'm, I'm going to define it a little bit differently here grace is undeserved favor Grace is looking beyond the fault, and it is extending compassion and tolerance and mercy. Grace fails to notice the blemishes, and it shows 
leniency. Romans 3.10 tells us no one does right, not even one. (laughs) Yes, that is talking about our sins. But you know what? I believe that could apply to every area of life. None of us are perfect. Amen? None of us are right. None of us are going to get it all right all the time. None of us are going to be 100%. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to use uh, to the use of edifying, and I like this sentence, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Minister grace unto the hearers. The, the natural bent of our society is the exact opposite. We don't do very good at ministering grace to people, or we don't do very good at, at showing leniency and tolerance to people. In fact, we're, we are just the opposite in society. We focus on telling people how they should change, and we focus on telling them how they need to improve. Or we go to the checkout line, and we get really impatient because the, the cashier is taking way too long. We get really impatient with these people. We, we get in the drive-thru and we wonder, we tap our foot and we wonder, are we ever going to get through this fast food checkout line? And why can't people hurry up? Why can't they meet all of our demands and do all the things that we want to? Why can't they meet our timelines? And why can't they meet our deadlines? And why can't they do it like we think they ought to do it? And so we have no grace at all. And so we're quick to point out all the faults at all of everyone else. We set standards in life and we think, well, they should meet our standards. They should do things like I think they should do them in life. And we end up slandering people that don't meet our standards. And and we don't want to cut any slack to those who don't measure up. And then we end up causing more harm than we do good. Richard Blackaby in his book, Putting a Face on Grace, gives us some tips of how we can minister grace to other people or cut them some slack. He says this, you can speak words intended to build up and not to bring down. He says you need to focus on the needs of others rather than your own. Freely forgive. Swallow your pride and say, I'm sorry and I was wrong. He says learn to live your life with the goal of no regrets. Don't burn any bridges, in other words. He says, don't keep score of what is fair. Don't condemn or give up on people. Emphasize mercy and not justice. Or here's a good one. Read 1 Corinthians 13 on a regular basis. That would do all of us some good, right? You see, church, as we allow the Holy Spirit to work inside of us, on the inside, the Holy Spirit will empower us to extend grace to other people. And it's just like forgiveness. All of us need forgiveness. All of us need grace as well. In fact, I believe that when we learn to extend grace to other people, we set the stage for miracles to take place in their life. When we learn to extend grace and we learn to to show some leniency to other people, and you say, yeah, but they need justice. They didn't meet my standards, and, and you know what? They made a mistake. I, you know what? They, they failed, and they, they, you know what? They've got faults, and, and, and they were supposed to do all those things just right, and they didn't make it. If we will, church, if we will learn to extend grace, just like our God shows grace to us, 
I love that old song, grace, grace, God's grace. Oh man, if we could learn to just show grace to other people, some leniency, and say, you know what, just as God has grace toward me, and I'll show some grace toward other people, it will set the stage for miracles to take place in their life. Because all of us need grace just as well. Amen? Then number five is we need unity in our church. Psalm 133, verse number one, says how good and pleasant it is when we dwell together and unity. You've heard me say this before that there's nothing like the local church when the local church acts like the local church. There's just nothing like it. You can't beat, you can't compare it to anything else in the world when the church does what it's supposed to do. There's nothing in the world. When the church begins to live and to work in unity, how good and pleasant it is, the Bible says. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Bible tells us, the Apostle Paul says that the church, it's the body of Christ. And a body cannot be a body if it is disunified. In other words, if my arm that's sticking out here says, you know what, I want to start acting like a leg. I'm going to have a severely disformed body, all right? Because that thing, yeah, Johnny, you're laughing at me now, right? Because I'm, that, thing, that thing's going to go down here and start acting. I'm, I'm going to be pretty messed up, aren't I? You know, or if my nose says, hey, I don't want to be a nose anymore. I want to start acting like a heart. I want to start beating like a heart. I mean, that's pretty messed up. You know, or if my head were to say, hey, I want to start acting like an elbow. You know, I mean, it's just, you can't do that. It, is, it ceases to be the body if it's not functioning and flowing right. It is disunified. Every member has got to do its part. Every member, when every member comes into place, there is nothing like the human body. What a magnificent masterpiece God has created when He created the human body. And man, when every part of the human body is flowing and functioning like it's supposed to be, I mean, wow. And the same thing with the church. Pardon me just a moment. The same thing with the church of Jesus Christ. When it is functioning and it is flowing like God has called it to be, there's nothing in the world like it. There's nothing like the church of Jesus Christ when it is doing the work that God has called it to be. When it is in perfect unity. And every member says, you know what, I'm just simply here to do the work of God. It's not about me, and it's not about them, and it's not about this person or that person. I'm just simply here to do the work of God, and I just simply want to see God work and do what He wants to do. Oh my goodness, when the church comes together in unity, man, the work of God can be accomplished. Miracles can take place. Lives can be touched and changed. There is nothing like the local church when the local church acts like the local church. We say, Pastor, how, how do we become unified? Let me share with you two secrets. Number one is that every member, every person, it's, it's about how we view ourselves in the church. We must humble ourselves personally. And we must see ourselves personally as a people that are in need of a Savior 
that we are individually people that are in need of grace. That we are individually people in need of the love and the mercy of God. If we personally would just view ourselves before God and humble ourselves as people in need of Him. And then the second thing is, if we will begin to view one another as The Apostle Paul said in Philippians 2, if we will begin to view them in humility and begin to view them as better than ourselves, church, God will begin to unify us. Humble ourselves and then begin to look at one another better than ourselves. God will begin to unify us. You see, we don't need to look for the errors and the defects and the follies of other people. We only need to look at one another in the light of the cross. If you look at other people any other way, and you begin to point out all these other defects and everything else, you're looking at people the wrong way. The only way I need to look at my brothers and sisters in Christ, every person in this church, is I need to look at you through the cross. And if I begin to say anything else, if I begin to demean people or criticize them or defame anyone else, how can we do that when those people have been covered by the blood of Jesus? Amen? And the same thing for you. How can you begin to defame or demean and criticize people who have been covered by the precious blood of Jesus Christ? So if we will humble ourselves before God and begin to look at one another in humility, God will begin to unify us and God will begin to bring us together and suddenly we will find ourselves as a church filled with people who are living together in peace and unity and harmony. God will bring us together. And again, the stage and the platform is going to be set for God to do His greatest work. Church, I don't know about you, but you know what? We're in a place, a season, a time of healing. But you know what? As we begin to come together, God is going to prepare us for the greatest days ahead at Salem Assembly of God. So we are a church that's in need of healing. We've got to begin to practice these things. and We've got to begin to live them out. We've got to guard these things of prayer and love and forgiveness and grace and unity. But I believe this as I begin to pray, God, how can we bring this all together? What are you wanting to say through all of this? I believe that God spoke this to my heart. God is going to use our brokenness and the season that we're in to also heal this community. God is saying, I want to use the process and the place where you're at right now. I want to bring beauty out of the ashes. That Old Testament scripture and that particular setting, when people were going through a time of mourning and going through a time of loss, they would take literally take ashes and they would throw them upon their head. That's why the beauty for ashes is there. The crown that is mentioned there, that's why that phrase is used is because God said I want to take the ashes I want to take all that stuff off of you and I want to put a crown of beauty upon your head I want to take away the mourning and the sadness I want to give you that oil of joy in your life I want to take what's broken and I want to mend and heal it I want to take what's broken in your life personally and I want to restore it I want to give you joy and life once again 
And even in the church, I want to do great things. I, I want to raise it up from out of that place of the ashes. And I want to raise it up to a place of beauty. And again, I want to establish my work and raise you up to be a mighty oak of righteousness in this community. So God wants to take where we're at right now. God wants to raise us up. God wants to do His greatest work and the season that is ahead of us. Amen?